Warning, this episode contains brain food that will lead to improved emotional and social intelligence. Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven media that promotes well-being from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights diverse trendsetters and change agents who are the greatest contemporary thinkers and doers, devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology expert, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in optimal lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where we are exploring the journey from grief to healing, finding hope and encouragement in times of loss. My first guest is Dr. Gail Gross. Dr. Gail Gross is a nationally recognized family, child development, and human behavior expert. She's also an author and a lecturer, and we're here today to talk about her latest book, The Only Way Out is Through, A 10-Step Journey from Grief to wholeness. Gail, Dr. Gross, I don't know which to call you. Well, so we'll start out with Dr. Gross. I'm so glad that you made time to, to, to be with me because your story and the information that you give in this book is so helpful to not only the loss that we experience through the death of a loved one, but these other losses that we will inevitably experience in our lives. Good morning, Lisa, and thank you for having me. And please call me Gail. <laughs> and yes, this this book is really about life's transitions. And uh, I I created a model to navigate those transi- transitions so that you do the you can move forward with your life with vitality again, libido restored, and face life successfully. Many times when we have any change loss of a child, a mate, a divorce, loss of a job, uh, change of location, change of a home, empty nest, whatever it, it happens in your life that is an ending, it signals a beginning. And so if we can navigate these endings successfully, we can come out on the other side. And grief, of course, is always a part of any transition. Because we're basically saying goodbye to what was, opening to what's coming forward. But to open to the the future, to open to what's new, we have to hang out for a while in what I call the valley of despair. In psychology, we really call it the neutral zone. It's a place where you do your inner work so that your persona that has been shifted because of change or transition can recalibrate and now it can recalibrate by not going backwards to the old patterns that informed you before the change but rather by taking back to yourself the disowned material that always sits in that valley of despair unknown uh, to you and we call it in psychology shadow material not because it's bad, just because you just are unaware that it's there. But when you bring that back, 
and integrate it back, you're complete. And that's re-energizes you and restores you so that automatically you enter a, pers- a, a larger persona on the other end. Gail, let's go back to the Valley of Despair for a moment, because this is the place that most humans are resistant or resistive to go into and explore. Something bad will happen, the sadness or grief will overtake us, and we will do anything to get out of this place as opposed to lean into it to move through it. Exactly. Because what happens to everyone when any kind of trauma hits, say you have a fight with a girlfriend or a fight with your boyfriend, immediately you feel vulnerable and you feel um, younger. You feel more at risk. And we automatically go back to the patterns we know, those patterns from our childhood, those patterns that inform us, that are comfortable to us, really the patterns that we used in our family of origin go on to get along. But if we don't go back there and we just hang out and hold the tension in this neutral spot that isn't familiar, that's uncomfortable, that doesn't have those scaffoldings or structures that are like our family of origin that are familiar to us, then we can do some inner work and we just hold the tension of the unfamiliar and the, the uncomfortable really because it's not not natural to us and meditate do some dream analysis keep a journal walk contemplate time alone you know that there's a great line in the bible be still and know that i am god well the truth of it is unless you enter stillness you can't feel your feelings you can't hear your thoughts and you can't attempt to deal with or integrate back those parts of yourself that you let go of along the way. And in the, in the valley of despair or neutral zone, if you do outer things that automatically and deliberately restore to you that shadow material, that will, that's where all the fertility really for the next part of your life is, the juice really. And it requires concentration and focus, really, and, and can can be done successfully with conscious awareness. And the grief does not have to be as painful as we think it is. That's a great statement, really, Lisa, because we all feel pain. When my daughter Dawn died, I was completely deconstructed and thrown into this abyss of a really sheer pain and agony. But pain does not have to be suffering. If you contract against the pain, you will suffer. If you let the grief wash over you and you allow yourself to have your grief, you can live again. And that's the the key, really, to change and transition, to find your own rhythm, your own timing, to smile when you want to smile, laugh when you want to laugh, and cry when you want to cry. Go out when you want to go out, stay in when you want to stay in. Be gentle with yourself. Treat yourself as if you were your own child. Because by doing that, you allow yourself 
to feel your feelings and not unconsciously suppress them. When you suppress them, you contract against them. When you contract against them, you will suffer. And then not only will you have lost that friend or that mate or that job or that or experience the loss of yourself with the emptiness, but you will lose yourself. You will become paralyzed and not be able to go on with your life in a healthy way. In your case, the book that you've written, The Only Way Out is Through, is part an accounting of your story, your inspiring story of loss and steps that we can take to manage, overcome, and transcend our own losses. But the, the, the deeply personal story that you tell catalyzed you on the path that you're on. Yes. Originally, this book took form because I was doing a three-day seminar with Dr. Dean Ornish in Omega, at the Omega Institute. And he was dealing with stress and um, health, heart disease. And I was talking about, lecturing about stress and grieving. And so we team taught for three days. And I realized when the class was over and the, the lecture was finished and we w- went back to our homes, I had written 50 pages of notes that really was the beginning of the book. And it was not personal. It was more my, my model that helped me sur- not just survive my daughter's death, but be able to live life functionally and vitally and with libido again. And then after that, I was on a cable television, either CNN or Fox, one or the other. And I was discussing grief and death. And a mother wrote me a very tough email, excoriating me. What did I know about grief? And I understood exactly how she felt. Because unless you've really been there, it's very hard to articulate or tell another person what to do or how to navigate these troubled waters. And and I realized in that moment, I answered her email and said, sadly, I do understand because I too have lost a child, but I understood her feelings and realized that when I wrote this book, I would have to personalize it. To make it authentic, I would have to show my journey through these steps. So that's what I did. And it is a incredible journey indeed. We are going to take a break in a, in a couple of minutes. And, but before we go to the break, I want to talk about self-investment because you touched upon leaning into the feelings, you know, the self-care required to heal and to process what has happened. Talk a little bit about self-investment and the return on that investment. Yes. Well, in the end, when all is said and done, you want to self-invest back into life. You know, you can't go through life without pain, but you can, as Bernie Spiegel says, you can choose how to use the pain um, that life presents us. So it has to be a conscious choice, a conscious choice to live again. And every person that faces a transition recognizes at some point that there is a moment where they have to choose to go forward. And if you take steps to help yourself, if you meditate, you're changing really the 
biology, if you will, of your brain. If you invest in dream analysis, you pay attention to your dreams, you're actually changing the brain architecture of your brain. Because when you meditate, for example, you're throwing more blood to the prefrontal cortex, you're calming yourself, and you're suppressing or subduing the output of your cortisol, the stress hormone. It is that stress hormone that operates and acts on the body like battery fluid. And battery fluid just wears the body down, but it also changes your brain, makes you feel more negative. When the brain isn't focused, it, it actually is more negative in the, the suppression of the hormones that would really give you joy. So by taking deliberate steps to work with your own biology, your own psyche, you can step back into life. And, and when you step back into life, when you've taken that part of your disowned material back to yourself, you're complete. And when you do that, what returns to you is your libido. It takes a tremendous amount of energy, psychic energy, to suppress your feelings. But when you take that energy and you no longer use it to suppress your feelings, you allow yourself to have your feelings, that energy returns to you. And that energy is your creative energy. And it moves you forward into a larger you, a larger persona, and back into life. We're going to take a break. We're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Gail Gross. When we come back to learn more about the work of Dr. Gail Gross, please visit drgailgross.com. On Twitter, you can find her at Dr. Gail Gross. On Facebook, the page is Dr. Gail Gross. On Instagram and Pinterest, it's the same handle. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Before we take the break, I want to schmooze with you about well-being. One of my passions is staying in shape to maintain good health and fitness as I age. Getting and staying in shape isn't just about losing weight. It's about learning healthier habits and feeling better about yourself, whether it's more stamina to keep up with the demands of a full and productive life, finally getting back into those tight jeans, <clears throat> you know what I'm saying, or practicing better and more balanced self-care. And as the years have passed, a little padding has appeared on my perimeter, along with hormonal changes that indicate time is marching on. Call it menopause or menopause if you're a guy. Yes, menopause is a thing. But I found a solution to shedding those pesky unwanted pounds with Noom, one of our newest show partners. Noom has been a great asset in helping me to make better self-care choices that have helped me drop weight, improve my self-esteem, and reduce stress. Noom is not a diet. Noom is a psychology-based platform and a habit-changing solution that helps users learn to develop a new relationship with food through personalized courses and coaching. Noom combines the power of technology with the empathy of real people to deliver successful behavioral change and sustainable weight loss results with a personal time investment of about 10 minutes a day. Noom even has an app for on-the-go, no-excuses engagement. And what I love most about Noom is the live connection with a real 
human goal specialist and the Noom community for accountability and encouragement. You don't have to change it all in one day. Small steps lead to big progress over time. And right now, listeners of the show can sign up for a complimentary trial today at Noom.com slash happiness. What have you got to lose? Visit Noom.com slash happiness to start your trial today. Get busy on your well-being goals at Noom.com slash happiness. Now here comes the break. To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the journey from grief to healing, finding hope and encouragement in times of loss. With my guest today, Dr. Gail Gross, let's return to that conversation. Gail, in the last segment, you mentioned several words several times, and I want to circle back to them because they're really important. And the first one, because my ears perked up as you said it, was libido that our libido diminishes when we are in grief. Exactly. You know, when you're grieving, you're losing energy. It's as if you had a leak in your heart. And most mothers or wives or friends that that are dealing with that kind of trauma, the loss of a loved one, always come back to the fact that their energy has been reduced, that they just don't have the, the psychic energy to work or study or read, they're distracted, they can't focus. And so when we uh, allow ourselves to have our grief, to have our, our sadness, when we allow it to wash over us, knowing that at the other end we'll feel lighter again and really live once more, in a certain way that surrendering allows us to then marshal more energy consciously by taking back our, the things that we've disowned, including our grief. Then we're restored because we're not using our energy to suppress our feelings. Instead, we're letting that energy move more uh, organically through us so that we can use it to heal. Most people that suppress their feelings lose themselves in the end with the person they loved because they become paralyzed. They can't get on with life. They're, they're distracted. They're, they're locked into their grief in a way that's paralyzing. But if you allow the freedom to render to your grief, then you can consciously take back your own material, that energy that, that is being suppressed, and that's your creative energy, and it revitalizes you. It makes you whole again. It restores you, and there are many ways to do that. You know, uh, we can write about our feelings and journal. We can make, pay attention to our dreams, which always inform us and tell us what's up and how to deal with it, and, and if we have time alone, so that we can feel our feelings. You know, if we step back into ourselves, we step back into life. Yeah. And, and m- many people feel that, you know, that's abandoning the person they love. But actually, 
It's taking them with you. It's integrating them back into yourself. First, you have to retreat. I always tell people take time away alone from others so that they can reassemble their psyche that's been so deconstructed. And if they need counseling, that's fine. If they need temporarily to use an antidepressant because they need a level playing field, that's fine. But at the end of the day, it's that behavior modification model that will help them where they consciously and deliberately surrender their grief, allow themselves to have their grief, and not use up their energy to suppress their grief. Then that energy is theirs. Which is where the meditation comes into play, the dream analysis. It's part of that leaning into process, the surrendering into what is. At least this is what I'm hearing you saying, which then, yes. which then allows a reignition of the pilot light. And the other piece of that is whenever we're in grief, we fall into a descent. While we're in that descent, if we can find meaning, what's meaningful to us in our life, that meaning is where manifestation happens in that sense. That's where we can change. And that's what moves us into an ascent and brings us back into life. And it's the inner work. You go back to the inner work and many of us, it's common to run from the inner work because it feels like it's going to be painful, uncomfortable or distasteful. And yet it is the only way that is the key is through this inner work. It must be That's done. That's right. That's right. And, and this is why I say specifically to hold the tension. Don't try to get back to normal. There, there's no way back to where you were before. Yes. But what you do do is create a new normal. You know, the Dalai Lama has a great line that says, pain is inevitable, but suffering is optional. And Jung always believed that dreams were the greatest diagnostic tool. The only two things Freud and, and Jung really agreed upon were the idea of free association and the power of a dream. Because a dream is the only unedited information that comes out of your psyche. And the free association is the only unedited information that comes out of your brain. So, and we call it the Freudian slip. <laughs> the Freudian, yeah. But, but, but at the end of the day, this is what's really going on within us that we are unaware of. But if we connect to our unconscious, the part of us who is really us, that is 98% of who we really are. If we connect to that part by paying attention to our dreams, writing them down and valuing them, a good dream will move you forward and tell you everything. Because we spend our lives from birth to death disowning major parts of ourselves based on our early patterns of childhood. In everybody's life, from birth, to death, there are only two people, your mother and your father. It looks like you and I are having a conversation right now, but actually your mother and father are on board and so are mine. <laughs> so instead of two, we're really six. And all of our relationships from birth to death are based on our relationships with those very important people in our lives, the patterns that we developed 
in relationship with those two people from the, the very beginning. The most important people in our lives are in our psyche, actually appendages of us when we're children. And the way we adapt and the way we adjust, the way we go along to get along, those are the patterns we're comfortable with. Those are the patterns we feel we know how to do. Those are the patterns that have a woman marry a dominating person again and again, or a man marrying an alcoholic woman or a controlling woman again and again. Even though they don't want that kind of mate, it's the difference between their wants and their needs. And they need what fulfills their early patterns from their family of origin. If that's what they unconsciously know, they know how to work with. And so it's those patterns we confront in the valley of despair so that we can individuate or break away by recognizing those patterns, acknowledging those patterns through inner work, and now separating from those patterns, which allows us to individuate. It allows us to integrate those patterns consciously back into ourselves rather than projecting them out onto others by consciously integrating them, we can deliberately decide and choose how to act and walk in the world. And now we're free. Now we individuate. We can hear our inner voice now. And by hearing our inner voice, we can find our true vocation. That's really the model of transition. It's really the model for health, psychological health, for moving on, one stage to another and for life and for restoring libido so that we can go into life with vitality. Bringing back the part of ourselves, the shadow that we've disowned, we are now complete. We're whole again. So in midlife, a real transition marker, most people can't do this. They don't have the courage to hang out in the valley of despair. So they go back and you often notice that as people get older, they get more childlike, they get more stubborn, they become more judgmental. Why? Because they're returning to the early patterns of their childhood. But for those brave few that have the courage to step into the unknown, to step into the valley of despair without the familiar structures and do the inner work, those are the people that find the fertility for the rest of their life because that is where the fertility for life is, in the shadow, in the unknown material that we've disowned until now. And by reaching forward and restoring ourselves, we move forward into life. And in essence, this is the hero's journey. You and I have talked prior about this, Joseph Campbell, and the the monomyth or the heroic journey that each one of us is called to take multiple times in our lives. That's exactly right. It's the hero journey. Because if we talk about the story, let's talk a moment about the hero. Let's talk about Percival. And what does Percival go looking for? He goes looking for the Holy Grail. And when he... Uh, His father is a great knight who's killed, and now Percival's mother has taken him away from all the village so that she can overprotect him and keep him safe so he won't die like his father. 
and ultimately he reaches the time of adolescence and separation, the first moment, the first opportunity for individuation, the time that most people can never individuate because they're still too dependent on their parents. But these knights come knocking on her door from the village, and these were the knights that were the colleagues of his father. And they say to Percival, we're here to take you for a rite of passage to help you become an adult, become a knight. And the mother is terrified. No, no, no. She doesn't want him to go. She doesn't want him to be killed like his father. But he is going. He realizes that this is his rite of passage. So she knits him a cloak, a cloak to protect him. And he, she puts it around him as he leaves with the knight. Now they come to this place where he can find the Holy Grail. But he has to ask the he has to answer the question. The question is, to whom does the grail serve? And he can't answer it because he's cloaked in his mother's protective armor. So he leaves the mountain. He goes searching for the rest of his life for the Holy Grail until the cloak is now just a little snippet of fabric. And now he gets back to the mountain where the grail resides. And now... Again, the question is presented to him. To whom does the grail serve? Now he has the answer. He's been beaten up by life a little bit. He's in midlife. The cloak isn't protecting him anymore. It's just a little scrap of fabric. And now he says, the grail serves me. And that is the hero's journey. That by taking back the disowned material, the shadow. The shadow isn't bad. It's just unknown to us. It's that other part of us. No one is all light. We must be light and shadow. And light and shadow makes us whole. And that's when we take back our power. And by taking back our power, we can go forward into life. That's the fertility of life that we find in the valley of despair. Oh. Most of us do not grow, transform, and transcend when life is easy, right? It usually comes as the result of something very difficult, a loss. And most people contract against the loss. And by contracting, they're suppressing their feelings. Many people distract themselves. How? Well, they may, if they ever had, for example, a bad habit say, drinking or smoking or an addiction, many people will return to that addiction. Why? To lower their pain threshold. But if they don't do that, if they contract against the pain, if they don't suppress the pain, if they don't distract themselves by life or entertainment or anything that takes them away from their feelings, and instead they sit with their feelings, and hold the tension. That tension then is the source of pressure. It's like an instinction, instinctual image. It, it builds up in the unconscious, like a pressure. And that tension then moves you forward. It gives you a dream. It has your feelings come to the surface because they're not being suppressed. It allows you to cry. It allows you to journal it talk about your feelings and these 
message can bring you back to yourself, can restore you, not to the self you were before, but to the self that is actually larger than before, because now you've taken back your shadow. Now you're whole. Yeah. And the allowance of being able to more fully occupy life, I think, is what happens through these journeys. That's so well said, because you're occupying life deliberately. That's the word. We also say consciously. We're operating in a conscious way rather than in a reactive way. Most people live and die unconsciously and go through all their transitions unconsciously using distraction, addiction, and other amped-down pain. But if we take life consciously, we can choose our behavior. We can choose what tree in our forest to use when rather than react unconsciously and project our feelings out onto others. It's, it's really the key to how to act in, and walk in the world. To learn more about the work of Dr. Gail Gross, please visit her website, drgailgross.com, on Twitter at Dr. Gail Gross, Facebook, Instagram, and Pinterest are all the same, Dr. Gail Gross. The book we've been speaking about today is The Only Way Out is Through a 10-Step Journey from Grief to Wholeness. Gail, I can't thank you enough for coming to share your heart with me and our listeners today. And I hope you'll come back because we've just scratched the tip of the iceberg. Well, I'd love to come back. My new book, How to Build Your Baby's Brain, The Neuroscience of Early Child Development, Zero to Five, will be out in August. Skyhorse and now uh, Skyhorse has been is collaborating with Simon & Schuster. And so you can get it on Amazon.com. And this book, The Only Way Out is Through in June, comes into soft cover. And that's Roman and Littlefield. I look forward to seeing you and talking with you again, Lisa. Me too. It's so great to catch up. Yes, <laughs> yes. All right, we're going to take that break. We'll be right back. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this episode. Why? Because sharing is caring. It's kind, free, legal, available 24-7. And we're talking about grief and loss. This is something that touches all of us at some point in our lives. And the purpose of this episode today is really exploring hope and encouragement in these difficult times of loss. And how do we mend our broken hearts? My next guest is Gary Rowe. He is an author, speaker, and grief specialist with eight books and over 500 articles in print. Gary is a former missionary and pastor. He now serves as a hospice chaplain and grief counselor for Hospice Brazos Valley in Central Texas. And his new book is Comfort for Grieving Hearts, Hope and Encouragement in Times of Loss. Welcome, Gary. Thanks for joining us on the show. 
Hi, Elisa. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. Thank oh, you. Well, it's an honor to have you. And it, and it is an honor to dig deep with you about a subject that most of us don't really like talking about, and mm. yet it is essential to talk about. Yes. It's, it's so often, it's not something that we particularly get up in the morning and say, oh boy, I want to think about grief. And yet we will encounter it every day in various forms. You know what? You bring up a very good point about every day there is some some level of grief that we must face. Talk a little bit about that, because some of our listeners might not recognize everyday grief. You know, I think we experience it almost from the moment that we wake up. Now, if anybody actually put those lenses on, it might be a little discouraging. But, you know, I get up in the morning with this weird idea that today is going to go smooth, but it never does. And it never goes exactly according to my plan. And I'm always interacting with other people and they have hearts and all of them have been through various experiences, various losses, and they might be experiencing grief on any level at any time. We all have those experiences where, you know, oh, somebody's road rage as we as we go to work or a coffee barista is in a bad mood or uh, somebody just goes off on us for no reason in a department store and we realize oh my goodness there, there are things going on in people's hearts and we encounter the results of that all the time and in our own lives it's how many times we will go through a day and something will remind us of something from the past a loss, a disappointment, a breakup, an estrangement. And we go anywhere from immediate tears to just this feeling in our hearts of ouch, yeah. you know, ouch. Ouch. I do know. And I appreciate you talking about that everyday grief and the encounters that we have with people on a daily basis. And sometimes we don't understand their reactions or we judge their behaviors. Mm -hmm. And right now, I think we're like we're going small to go big because grief is not always about the death or the loss of someone. It can be the loss of something. Yes, it, it really can. It can be a job termination. It can be the loss of a physical ability of some kind. It can be even erratic blood work, <laughs> you know, at, at your yearly physical or a bad diagnosis or your opinion, a diagnosis you didn't want. Uh, it could be a, a breakup. It could be an offense of some kind. Uh, goodness, it can just be a profound disappointment. And that can be in the financial realm, in the emotional realm, in the spiritual realm. There are all kinds of uh, manifestations of grief. If I had to guess, you know, most people think of loss as death of course, but I tend to think of loss as a disappointment of some kind, and it kind of goes from there. And we are going to have disappointments because we can't help ourselves. We have expectations. And when we have expectations, lo and behold, uh, not everything is going to work out the way we want to, and we're going to face that disappointment of some kind somewhere. And when it's relational in nature, that's when it really gets us, I think. That's when it really hits our hearts. You know, it's interesting that you talk about expectation because when we experience grief and loss, and many of us, when we do, perhaps are not even aware that that's what it is because we mm -hmm. place ourselves in the mindset, well, we've got to get ourselves together. We've got to pull up our pants. 
We've got to move forward because we have to provide for the family. We've got to take care of our kids. Life must go on. And in your work, and you can speak to this as the expert, but it seems to me that acknowledging the fact that there is grief and processing that loss on some level is essential in order to rebound and move forward. Yes, I, I completely agree. Grief will be expressed just one way or just Somehow. one way or another. <laughs> you know, as 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 I like to put it, you know, I can either find ways to express grief proactively, like when I feel it, or when I feel an emotion that, oh, we typically describe as unpleasant anxiety, fear, maybe a depressed feeling of some kind of sadness, anger, you know, th- those kind of feelings. Being able to, exactly as you said, acknowledge them and then being able to identify them. What I call it is airing my feelings. And I don't mean just to the world, but literally an acronym, A-I-R. Acknowledge what's going on. Identify it if I can. Just as simple as, gosh, I'm feeling angry right now. And then find a way to record that feeling somehow and release it, whatever that might be. It might be journaling for a little bit. It might be just talking out loud. Uh, I know that people who drive around me must think I'm uh, really weird or else I'm using my Bluetooth because I'm talking when I'm driving almost (laughs) all the time. I I talk out loud in order to process what just happened because in hospice work, I've been with a patient and family. And it's just so easy not to think about that, not to talk about that and just go to the next one. But anyway, I've rabbit trailed there a little bit to say (laughs) if we don't find ways to proactively inhale healthy ways express our emotions and our grief, they're going to leak out in Mm. some shape, form, or fashion, usually in ways that either we regret or ways that are unhealthy. Yeah. You know, you say you went went sort of on the rabbit trail, but I think it's actually really important to talk about the work that you do in hospice because essentially you are helping people pass from this Mm. stage of their life to the next place, wherever that may be. I have a girlfriend who does hospice work and she calls herself a death doula. Mm-hmm. And that's that big, is, big work. You know, it really is. And people often say to me, oh, how can you do that? You know, I, I could never do that. And um, but, but it's not like I came into life saying that this is what I wanted to do. It's more I have been transitioned into this through my own grief, losses, experiences, desire to heal, desire to process things well. And it really is, I mean, for me, it is a sacred task. I get to enter people's lives at an incredibly vulnerable time. And where they're, you know, most of the masks are gone. Most of the positioning and posturing that we do on a daily basis is no longer necessary. So they drop that. And we get to have really honest, forthright, authentic communication about what needs to happen so that they can die well. And what is their definition of that? How do we transact any unfinished business, et cetera? So it really is a it's a hard thing. It is hard because there's a lot of grief and emotion involved, but it's a beautiful thing, too. Yeah. The poet Rumi I can't recall the exact words, but he wrote a beautiful poem about the exquisiteness of suffering. 
in mm. the, the beauty in suffering. And that mm. sounds like an oxymoron, but I think you know what I'm speaking of. Yes. We tend to run from suffering, and, and none of us wants to run to it. Right. That's not the... <laughs> But but the fact of the matter is, is that we live in a world where suffering exists. I like to call it a broken world um, because but anyway, suffering is a part of living on this planet. And so when it does come knocking, um, how we embrace it or deal with it or really how we see it and interpret it and respond to it will make all the difference. If we attempt to run from it when it's knocking on our door, chances are it's just going to keep knocking anyway. Oh, I think more than knock, choke. <laughs> it will choke us, you know, because the more yes. we resist, it persists, or so it seems. I couldn't agree with you more. Being able to really, I guess, acknowledge reality as exists as it exists in the moment You know, many people know the serenity prayer used by Alcoholics Anonymous. It was originally penned by a German theologian named Reinhold Niebuhr. And there is a second verse, a a rather long second verse to that prayer, but there's one little segment in it that I love. And it says, taking this broken world as Jesus did, rather than the way I would want it. Mm. And I thought, oh, that describes me so often. I really lack the ability to just take people and the world as it is rather than being disappointed all the time about the way I would have it to be, engaging with what is and attempting to do good in the midst of that. That's so beautiful. And it is really the essence of Christ consciousness or the Buddha or agape love. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that ability Mm -hmm. to, to see oneself in the other and to accept what is uh, life on life's terms, so to speak. Well, we're going to mm-hmm. need to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Gary Rowe about his newest book, Comfort for Grieving Hearts, Hope and Encouragement in Times of Loss. To learn more about Gary's work, please visit his website, www.garyrowe.com. On Twitter, that handle is Gary Rowe Author. And on Facebook, Gary Rowe author. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book. Are we happy yet? Eight keys to unlocking a joyful life. A boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness is available at Barnes and Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious. And happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more. Yeah. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Perhaps you or someone you know is going through some grief, going through the loss of a loved one or a situation, or perhaps even oneself. We're talking today with author Gary Rowe about his new book, Comfort for Grieving Hearts, Hope and Encouragement in Times of Loss. So Gary, prior to the break, we were talking about your work in hospice and the rigorous, intense nature of what you do, helping Mm. people pass from this earthly planet to wherever the next station may be. But I want to jump around a little bit and talk about the nature of humans and being Mm. designed for impact as you write. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I really believe, Lisa, that we are. And coming from my particular faith, you know, believing that all human beings are created in the image of God. And the way I could simply describe that is we are all of priceless value, all of us. And that being said, it's obvious from looking around, really designed for relationship with one another. Uh, You know, in hospice, I get to talk with people all the time about their regrets in life. And I have yet to hear in 10 years uh, any regret that is not tied to another person or a relationship in some shape, form, or fashion. We're really designed and wired for connection, and we express that almost the moment we come out of the womb. Yeah. And so, designed for relationship, we automatically influence each other and have great impact. All of us can look in our past, and we can see watershed figures, as I would call them in our past, mentors, perhaps parents, perhaps friends, whoever it might be that made a real difference in the trajectory of our life for whatever for whatever reason. We can also look back and see other people who made a difference in the trajectory of our life, but maybe not such in such a positive way. And so I believe that living in the midst of the world that we do, we're going to be hit by loss. We're going to be hit by grief. I know that I was multiple times really pretty horrendously so, before the age of 15. And I can remember in my little 15-year-old brain somehow saying, well, if this is what life is going to be, I'm going to have to figure out a way to turn this around. I'm going to have to figure out a way to use loss and grief for fuel to make a difference, because I believe that's why I'm here. And I believe that's why we're all here, uh, to make a difference in each other's lives and to make a difference for the greater good of all of us. I agree. And when you look at seminal works such as Viktor Frankl and Man's Search for Meaning, and he talks about Mm. meaning Mm -hmm. making, that after one survives a horrendous trauma, the challenge then becomes how do we make meaning out of that experience in service Mm. to ourselves and others? That's exactly right. You know, it's not, I had a mentor in college who said to me, you know, Gary, it's not so much what happens to you or around you but how you interpret and respond to what happens that really makes the difference. Yeah. And I have really found that to be true. That plus it's not what I did that matters most now. It's really what I do next that really matters now. I love that. Say, say that again, because that is, that is precious right there. <laughs> <laughs> that it's not what I did that matters most now, but it's what I do next that yeah. really matters most now. Yeah. We all mess up. We all do things we wish we could reel back in and, you know, erase. But we we can still, if we're willing, I believe, 
turn it around. Agreed. When we talk about grief, say somebody feels like they're they're they know that they've just been through something. They may be in mm-hmm. shock, you know, they you know, mm-hmm. disbelief that that whatever has just happened has happened. The loss of somebody, uh, even a hurricane takes out your house. I mean, there's there's so many natural disasters going on around the world today that sometimes that's the form it takes. But you don't really realize that you're in grief, but you know mm. something is not right. Talk mm-hmm. about some of the symptoms of grief for those who may not even know what that should feel like. I think that's a great question because I think we make a, a lot of assumptions about what grief is and, and how it manifests itself. For me, you know, I'm a guy, so I'm <laughs> thinking boxes. So just bear with me here for a moment and, and think of my boxes with me that we are whole people, but, you know, there is this emotional side of us. There is this spiritual side. There is a mental side. There's a physical side. Now, all of those are interwoven and influence each other all the time and make up who we are. But in terms of seeing the symptoms of grief, I find it helpful to kind of break them down like that. For example, first of all, physically, some of the symptoms that a person is in grief, their personal hygiene takes a break. You know, they find themselves not showering enough. Maybe if it's a guy, you notice he's not shaving you know, the way it normally does. Anything out of the ordinary, I guess. Grief tends to suppress things like our our hunger, our our taste buds, our immune system. We tend to get sick more often. We tend to hydrate less. We either eat less or more, um, but our eating might change during that time. Uh, Another thing that we see is all kinds of weird physical symptoms might arise. Uh, fatigue is the most common one. Yeah. Uh, but beyond that, you know, people experience everything under the sun. Um, headaches, palpitations, chest pain, joint aches and pains, stomach distress, intestinal distress. And some people, if you've had a loss that's close, uh, people even begin to have symptoms that mirror what they think their loved one experienced when they died if it was a death. Wow. Um, like, <laughs> like, like if a person dies of a heart attack, you have a survivor experiencing chest pain or something of that nature. Or if stomach cancer was involved, you have someone experiencing extreme stomach discomfort and pain that they have never felt before. Now, my advice to people is always, if it's weird and it concerns you, by all means, go get it checked out. But just be aware that grief does affect us physically. Emotionally, emotion tends to take up a lot more space in our lives when we're in grief. And the, the two main emotions in grief are sadness and anger. Now, there are others besides that, of course. Um, there are things like depression and anxiety. Anxiety and panic attacks are uh, very frequent with people who are experiencing uh, grief of some kind. Um, moving on, because I know we're on a, in, a, in a bit of a time crunch. Spiritually, um, you know, nobody winds up spiritually the same after loss, ever. If we do, we're really not human. We either we, we grow or we digress spiritually in some, in some way. But our faith, as it were, is jostled and shaken by loss, and it should be, because we should use these times to really grow to better define now what is it that I believe? And whatever we believe, whatever we end up believing, has got to be able 
to have a framework to handle the losses that life is going to deal us or else it's not going to work for us, whatever that is. And then the mental impact. People forget things. You know, they, yeah. there's this mental fog that happens for people when they're grieving. They're just not as mentally sharp. Their performance work isn't what it was. They lose words in sentences. And a number of people in grief come to me and say, am I going crazy? I mean, do I have early onset dementia? Do I? And I say, probably not. <laughs> you know, this, you're just being impacted by grief. And so if we can think of it this way, we have this system that is our bodies and everything encased in it. And if grief is taking a lot of our physical, emotional, spiritual and mental energy, then there's just a lot less left for normal life. So to expect ourselves to be the same people doing the same things when we're in grief is really unrealistic, usually. Well, I think to expect ourselves to remain the same is really an unachievable expectation because the only constant is change. And whether it's as a result of grief or joy, we usually are transformed by it. Yes. Often people say, I just want to get back to being me. And my response to that is, well, you has changed. Yeah. You're not the same you. You're a different you. You you really are because a a strand in your web has been severed of some kind. And as a result of that, uh, you're adjusting and adapting to this new world that you're living in, uh, whatever the loss might be. So it is, it is growth. It's transformation. And, you know, I think some of the other symptoms of of grief that we might not recognize, if we find ourselves self-medicating, doing other Mm, uh, avoidant behaviors to numb what's going on. In my work and in my observation, I see that sometimes grief is unexpressed for years, but it does come out in other ways or it gets expressed, but maybe not cognitively. Yes, absolutely. We drink too much. We pull away from people. We work too hard. You know, we desperately attempt to fill our lives with whatever noise, I guess, um, we can to quiet our hearts that are really screaming for expression. Um, And it's you're right. My father dropped dead in front of me. He He really was my world at the time when I was 15. And uh, I didn't have the ability to process that. So lo and behold, anxiety and panic attacks out of the blue when I'm 35 years old. Yeah. And, you know, and that's what it was all about. And I got to go back, (laughs) I guess you could say, and uh, relive that a little bit. Uh, We don't particularly want to do that. But if we feel what's real, it always ends up in the healing realm somewhere. I agree. The, the, the book we're talking about today is Comfort for Grieving Hearts, Hope and Encouragement in Times of Loss. My guest today has been author Gary Rowe, who is a speaker and grief specialist. And he's also a hospice chaplain and grief counselor in Central Texas. Gary, thanks for being with us. I want to give your contact information one more time. To learn more about Gary's work, please visit www.garyroad.com, on Twitter at Gary Rowe Author, and on Facebook, Gary Rowe Author. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Lisa. Oh, thank you. Thank you you very, very much. Oh, thank you. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. 
Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness today. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest, Dr. Gail Gross and Gary Rowe, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with TogiNet Radio, KBUU Radio Malibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.